the weirdest thing about realization, liberation, and so forth is you realize, oh my God, this has been in front of my face the whole time. Nothing has been hidden from me. It was an act of smoke and mirrors in the mind. Awareness, the final frontier. These are the explorations of Jonathan Robinson and Brian Tom O'Connor. Their continuing mission, to discover fresh new paths to the mystery within, to seek out new joys and new methods of awakening, to boldly go into the heart of expanded consciousness. This is Awareness Explorers. Welcome back, Awareness Explorers. We're very thrilled to have you here with a new guest explorer, Angelo DeLulo. Hopefully I pronounced his name correctly. And I've been good. I've been hearing a lot about Angelo and I'll introduce him in a moment. But first I am with my trusty co-host. Brian Tom O'Connor. And you've been reading Angelo's book, Brian, so I know you know a lot about him. I know very little about him. Between us, we'll have this covered. What's the first thing you can say that strikes you about Angelo's book or his teachings? Oh, well, first, you know, (laughs) Awake, It's Your Turn, his book. It's become one of my top favorite books of all time. I mean, I just want to let our listeners know, definitely read this. I just love this book. As a matter of fact, I'd put it up on the shelf next to like Power of Now and Ajashanti's Emptiness Dancing. And the other holy books like The Enlightenment Project, which somebody you know wrote. (laughs) Plus, anyone who would quote Walt Kelly, who's the creator of the Pogo comics, is a man after my own heart. Well, let's give a little bio on Angelo. Angelo DeLulo works as a full-time physician and in his spare time works with people who are undergoing the process of awakening and deepening realization. These interactions began to occur organically about 15 years after his own awakening. And over time, this led to writing the book that Brian mentioned, uh, Awake, to facilitate the process of awakening people who are inclined in that way. And then he also developed a website, simplyalwaysawake.com, and a YouTube channel by the same name soon followed. And I know that Angelo is an anesthesiologist, as well as a pretty well-known teacher now of awakeness, and we want to welcome you to Awareness Explorers, Angelo. Thanks for having me. Well, I'll start with a question just because I know that our listeners, some will know your work, some won't, but how did the awakening process happen in you? I mean, usually you don't think of a physician, they are very busy, so did this happen Going to medical school after medical school, what, what, what created this experience? Oh, so it was, it was before I even began uh, pre-medical sort of undergrad training. Really, it was a path of suffering. I, I just grew up with a, a very intense internal experience of suffering. Uh, something just felt wrong about the way I was processing life, the way um, life felt to me, the way people felt to me. I could pick up from other people that there was something, um, I don't know, inauthentic perhaps in the way people thought, the way people interacted. It felt like a lot of um, sort of ambivalence in the way people move through life. And as I grew up, I felt myself sort of picking that up empathically. Now, this this is a way I'm describing it in retrospect. 
at the time I did, I couldn't have used those words necessarily. I mean, this started when I was like a child, but as I was growing older, I, I definitely felt more and more that there's something just did not feel right. It felt dysphoric, uncomfortable. And I would say by the time I was 15, 16, 17, I was interested in Eastern thought. Um, I didn't have access to any kind of formal teachings or anything like that, but I, I was interested in sort of martial arts, didn't really know why. I remember finding the Tao Te Ching, Tao Te Ching uh, in, a, in a bookstore once, looking through it, and I, I would read it and just, I didn't understand it, but I knew there was something there. I, you know, it just was so perplexing the, the language. And, you know, I was, I was a kid. So I was like learning to think myself, uh, you know, in logical ways and so forth. So it just, it didn't make sense, but I, I just looked at it and I said, there's, there's something here. I don't know what it is, but I didn't really know what to do with any of this. And the suffering just got more intense, just kind of felt like a pressure cooker, to be honest. When I was about 18 or 19, I learned transcendental meditation from, Me from an old, yeah, from an old hippie who learned it from Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in the sixties. And he, he just taught in his, on his own, essentially not really with the TM programs, uh, per se. And he taught me to meditate. And, uh, that was the only sort of practice, spiritual practice or any of any kind I'd ever done. Uh, and so to me, that was like the right way to do it. It just made sense. It felt good. And I would say within a couple of months, I started having some pretty significant experiences, what I would now look back and call like a pre-taste of awakening, but I had no context for it. I had no one to explain what was happening. Not even my teacher really, although he, he resonated with it and he was very pleased when I told him what I was experiencing, um, for short times, but there was no, um, instruction on what to do with it, how to go deeper that, 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 that actually this is starting to be a sort of sign that you're approaching a portal perhaps of some sort. I didn't know any of that. I had no idea. So I, I just kept meditating and, because there was so much suffering and there was emotional repression and, and so, so much just internal angst, sort of super anxiety. I really took to meditation, like someone in the desert takes to water. I, I just, yeah. I always looked forward to it every day. I did it a couple times a day. Uh, felt very good. Now, as anyone knows with meditation, though, there are times when it doesn't feel good and it's kind of like hard to know what to do with that. But, but generally speaking, it was sort of my lifeline. It just, it just felt really good. It felt right. Uh, and so I did that for a few years and then, then the, the event basically the event. started, started to come into fruition. The conditions to bring this event about came into fruition. That, that was a complete dramatic shift out of anything I would have called what felt like normal life to me or a normal self or all of it just completely changed with, with that shift. And that was when I was 24. We can talk more quick, about that if you're interested. Quick, quick, well, a question about that. You know, I've been meditating and a lot of people listening to this have done spiritual practice for a lot of years. What's your theory as to why this thing happened to you and it does not happen to most people in that way? Mm. The handful of things I could, I could kind of throw out there, uh, and, and these are based on reflection on my own experience, but also just working with many people going through this process uh, that, that I would say are sort of that maybe the difference between someone who is really ready. I don't want to say that they can or can't because anyone can, I'm certain of that, but that they're ready to, that they're, that they're ready to really just step off that edge or inquire in a way that is like burning all bridges uh, versus someone who's not quite there or not quite ready. So, so here's a handful of things that, that may come into play. One of them for me was 
it, it was very obvious to me at some point that there is no way I could solve this 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 deepest problem, this problem of suffering. There was no way I could solve that with thought, with with thought, which actually was much more broad than just an occasional thought coming through your head. I knew that thought was everything I was perceiving, the way I was perceiving myself, the world, relationships, people, what I thought I wanted, what I thought would make me happy. I could see it was all fundamentally flawed at some point. And, and I did, and I guess I didn't blame it on anyone else per se, although I could see many people also operated that way. And I learned it from people. I took it inside and I said, I know I can't do this for myself. There's something intrinsic to the way I was perceiving the world, myself, et cetera, through thought that was flawed. I could just, I just knew it. So something in me was really ready to let go and to, it's a sort of giving up or surrender. Adi Shanti uses the word surrender a lot. It's a very good word. Not that I wanted to give up on life or really, or myself even, but giving up on the insistence that I know how life needs to be for me, that I know how to make myself happy, that I, that, that the way I perceive the world is the right way, is the way it actually is. I was willing to forego all of that and just let it all go because I realized it was flawed. I could feel it and I could see it. Mm. Um, that's, that's, that's probably the most important component, I would say. Now, what's interesting is I notice, and I'm, I'm sure I went through this as well, uh, but what I see with people who are on the, this path of awakening, they, they get more and more serious in a sense as they inquire, as they become more one-pointed about, about the shift itself. But it also happens through, this, this happens through life challenges and life experiences that show you again and again that, hey, this thing you thought you wanted that was going to make you happy, here, let's, let's give it to you. Did it make you happy? Did it fundamentally make you happy? And that's, a play, that's, the, that's the point where you have, to, well, I don't know if you have to, you, you get to decide, am I going to be authentic with myself and realize it didn't make me happy? That relationship didn't make me happy. Whatever you thought you needed didn't make me happy. So it's not going to make me happy the next time or the next time or the next time. Now, it's a hard pill to swallow. But if you swallow that pill, that's a good thing in, in, when it comes to awakening, right? It's, yes. it's a terrible thing if you think you want to preserve your own idea about how you're going to make yourself happy. Then it's really bad. <laughs> but it's great if you want to wake up and you're willing to really start to jump and let go and step off the edge and so forth. Um, so seeing that that the the beliefs we have about what it is out there that's going to make us happy which is a handful of things right it's it's money security validation love sex a partner perfect job all of it you know position those sorts of things just seeing that really those are all surrogates for something those those may give you temporary relief they may give you temporary happiness but they're they're not deeply satisfying fundamentally and when you see that Again, you have the opportunity to just chase the next one or just kind of conveniently forget that, that that didn't really work. So, you know, or you can just see, oh, the whole system of seeking, the whole system of later when I get X, I'll be happy is actually based on the fundamental perception right now that something's wrong with me. And it, and it keeps underscoring that sense that something's wrong. So the whole seeking system that we, we really occupy a lot of our mind with throughout the day is failed. So then, then it kind of makes you go, well, sh- where else do I look? Or what else am I going to look at? Where else can I look? You start to feel this funny, it's a simultaneous sense of, of sort of disappointment and letting go and even grief, letting go of the old ways that you're thinking, you've uh, thought about yourself and a kind of excitement, a, mo- a, a sort of um, sublime, innocent fascination with well, what the hell else could be here? 
like if I'm going to let go of everything I think I know about myself and the world and life and so forth, what's going to replace that? If anything, what does it feel like to walk directly into the, into the mystery, into the mysterious? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of another component. And I list a few things in my book um, that are sort of one-liners, but I think they're important. And one is, I think, I think a lot of people get into spirituality or spiritual, they get interested in spirituality, spiritual groups, spiritual practices with a sort of mixed agenda. And part of it is authentic and, and it really is what drives the awakening process. But part of it is a, is a lie we tell ourselves, And that's that we're doing it to feel better. You're, you're not going to feel better all the time when you're going through this process. In fact, you're going to feel worse sometimes. And so one of the one-liners I put in my book about this is be willing to be uncomfortable. If you're not willing to be uncomfortable in this process, you're going to sooner or later, you'll, it'll just be, get co-opted with, with fe- essentially a fear, a fear of the unknown, a fear of feeling uncomfortable, a fear of vulnerability. All of those things are going to come into play at some point. So the process of realization is really a mixed bag experientially in the moment. So there are going to be times when you're going to feel truly expansive and, and incredible mystical states and experiences will come here and there. And for some people, they come frequently, but you're also going to feel intense self-doubt at times. Not that that's new even, it's just becoming uncovered. It's being pulled to the surface. You're going to feel emotions that you didn't realize you had repressed, you know, anger. Anger is a big one actually, um, but uh, sadness, grief, and fear. So these, these shame, these are going to come to the surface. So being willing to actually feel these emotions just as they come, not get too entangled in them, not, not make a huge story about them, but just realizing that, that the part of this process really is, um, is, is kind of the dark night stuff that comes the dark night of the soul. You know, it's not one big, long, dark night of the soul, but you're going to have times where it feels like that. It feels like you're just so immersed in this, in this sort of dys- dysphoria and so forth that it can be disillusioning, but it also has to be that way because mm-hmm. we're letting go of our orientation that we've been using, which is a cognitive or mental orientation that we've been using to make ourselves feel stable, but it's a pseudo stability. It's a stable dissociated, dissociated state that humans are hypnotizing each other into constantly. And it's uncomfortable. It's fundamentally uncomfortable. This is Buddhism, right? First, first yeah. noble truth of Buddhism, life is suffering. So that's what that is. And, um, when we start well, to deconstruct an analogy, that, yeah. an analogy I've sometimes used for people is you're holding on to one trapeze uh, called the material world and all those hopes. Well, you have to let go of that one to grab the next one. And somewhere in there, you're in midair, not holding anything. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And even I, I would even extend that analogy to say the, the nature of what it means to even grab onto that next trapeze is completely beyond you. It's, it's mm-hmm. something so beyond the, the, the framework and the scale of what, how the human perceives itself that it, it turns out to be very good news, but, but it really has to be sort of movement into the unknown. It, it just is, it's just that way. Um, and, and that's a great analogy is like, yeah. So, so I would say some of those things, you know, the willing, the willingness to feel uncomfortable at times, not to try to turn spirituality into something to try to make you feel good constantly. Cause it's not going to do that. Not, not when you're authentic about trying to wake up. Um, being willing to let go and being willing to see clearly that the, the things you're seeking to make yourself happy just aren't delivering the goods. So I think those probably are, are some of the important differences. Um, and then, then a, another one that is one of the reasons I wrote the book is there's a lot of confusion. There, there's so much, spir- there, there's been an explosion in spiritual 
stuff and people and talks and um, and videos and podcasts. I mean, it's just everywhere. And, th- and that's great. It's really awesome. But um, when it comes to authentic awakening, you really have to kind of pick through different things and, and try some things and be willing to let go of the things that aren't working. And, you know, until you start resonating more and more with a certain teaching or pointing, and then sometimes that will run its course and you have to look around again and say, okay, I need to find a teacher who can point me farther, you know, and it gets a little narrower as you go along as as you go up the mountain, it gets narrower and narrower until you find, you know, a handful of people that that are really, really good and clear and can point you in a very direct way and, and that sort of thing. So being willing to adjust, being flexible, being willing to let go of the uh, attachment to a spiritual community sometimes is a, is a big barrier for some people. It just is like someone's a, they've, they've been in this, whatever community, a community of a thousand people. And it's a very tight community. And there's even some dynamics in there where that you're shamed for leaving or trying other teachings. That stuff is not so good when it comes to awakening. It's, it's a very personal pathway. And, um, Social You're talking pressure. about my, my personal experience there, Angelo. I was with a community for 26 years. Mm-hmm. And at some point I realized, you know, be, this is I'm now using my spiritual community as a form of comfort. Yeah. And that's not good. Yeah. It really is a discovery process. And leaving was challenging. Mm-hmm. There you go. So, you know, everyone's a little different. Some people tend that way. Other people are the opposite fixation. I don't need anyone. I don't need a teacher. I don't need a song. I want to do it all myself. I just want to read online and learn the steps and just do it and not ever go to retreats and not. So, so there's, there's definitely a value to putting yourself in situations too, where you're in prolonged retreat meditation and things like that. Mm So if I could summarize the whole thing, it's a matter of what are your fixations? Where are you fixating and being able to, to inquire into and dissolve those fixations? Like that's how I work with people. Um, I don't have a really method. I just feel where they're fixating in the moment. And then we address it directly. And I don't, I don't ever call it out and say, this is wrong. I just say, what are you feeling here? Let's feel into it. Let's look at it, you know, closer, let's inquire and so forth. Um, and then the fixation dissolves and then, then a, a deepening happens and then some emotional material comes to the surface and then that's, you know, integrated. And then another fixation surfaces and, and they become subtler and subtler as you wake up more, let's say, um, mm-hmm. or as perceptual filters fall away and, and you start experiencing reality in a much more direct spontaneous, integrated, intimate way. Brian? In your book, uh, you make a distinction between awakening and liberation. And you Mm -hmm. also earlier mentioned about your experience. So I wanted to ask you if you could sort of elucidate the difference between those and maybe, um, you know, if you feel like throwing in any of your personal experience along the way, that'd be great too. Yeah. So when I say awakening, I, I really mean the, the first significant and very real shift in identity. It can happen sort of slowly, but it generally is, generally speaking, it's pretty obvious the moment it happens. Sometimes that comes with a tremendous emotional release and a, and a very like almost like an earth shattering change in the way you perceive everything. And other times it's more like, oh, I was expecting these big fireworks. There's no fireworks, but something damn well changed about the way I experience myself in the world. And that doesn't change back. So that's, that's what I mean by awakening. And I, in the book, I unpack that a lot in Zen, Renzai Zen, or even Soto Zen, it'd be called Kensho or perhaps Satori um, and, or stream entry. If you're you know going way back to the suttas and, and whatever. So that's the first awakening or, or initial shift. 
it really is, at least in Buddhist terminology, would be your spiritual birth. It, it's really the beginning. It's a significant, profound, and important shift, and you know it. And it, it kind of defines, in a sense, your spiritual life, I guess you could say. But experientially, it's it's just it's a it's a big shift in the way um, things uh, are perceived. What's interesting is after that, it feels a lot less like you're in control of the whole spiritual journey. There's something. There's another dimension that just came in. Call it Holy Spirit. Call it the Buddha Dharma. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. But there's something else moving everything, and you kind of know that. Now, the worst thing you can do at that point is fight that and decide, no, no, I'm going to control this. I'm going to decide where my spiritual journey goes. I'm going to be the guru. I'm going to define my life this way and that way. And that can really lead to some bad situations, actually, <laughs> uh, almost like cult-like behavior in the extreme. Um, and, and there are contemporary people out there today who, who've done that. And so you got to be really careful after that first awakening. You're just at the beginning. Um, you know, in Zen, they would say your foot's in the door. You got the door cracked open, but you're not in the room yet. I mean, there's a lot of work to do. What's interesting is some of the repressed material that, that really becomes the most important, let's say, thing to address after that awakening uh, is something that you'll want to often overlook, but, but it actually can become more pronounced in your life. And this can be obvious to people around you more than it is to you sometimes. And it's, it's really about like reactivity reactivity, control. Some people kind of be turned into more of a jerk after awakening for a while because the, the layers of inauthentic identity that was sort of holding it down are kind of dissolved away. And then the deeper, not necessarily inauthenticity, but the deeper, let's say, anger that's wrapped around the persona that we're identified with in the deeper emotion body, that now comes to the surface and there's less of a, of a governing tendency. There's less of a holding back because we're like in this place where we trust life now in a, in a deeper way. And yet part of that is really hard to swallow. We realize like, oh man, underneath a lot of this nice guy stuff, I wasn't such a nice guy. I had a lot of anger. I had whatever, right? So it starts to express itself. So that's a, I wouldn't say it's a dangerous time, but it's a potential time for, for things to go wrong. Uh, and, and as I described, you, you, can, you can sort of try to co-opt the whole process for your own ends in a way like the ego can almost become stronger in a certain way uh, for a while. Uh, the best thing you can do at that point is to become humble, to, to find a teacher that's going to keep you in line or that, that will be honest with you and direct with you, not an abusive teacher, but someone who will be really authentic with you and, and really show you how to start working through the emotion stuff, the shadow stuff, uh, reactivity. That's, that's the best thing you can do at that point. Um, the worst thing you can do is decide you're enlightened and, you know, go out and decide to start a huge, massive sangha and start marketing it and all that, 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 that can turn really ugly actually. Um, so, so anyway, that, so awakening is sort of the beginning. That's, that's what I, how I define it. Liberation in the way I use the term, which could be equated to would be called enlightenment, maybe traditionally, although there's different meanings of enlightenment in the different traditions, but essentially it, it would be enlightenment is, is a much more profound, subtle, uh, and thorough realization. It's very, it's quite thoroughgoing. And so I would say that I would probably not call, uh, someone liberated, uh, until they have truly realized, fully realized and integrated no self or anatta in all aspects. So that's how I would define liberation liberation from suffering, but liberation from suffering is liberation from the illusion of a separate, 
abiding suffering self. Mm-hmm. Also liberation from the illusion that there's anything that's permanent or that there's anything that's impermanent. <laughs> um, the illusion of uh, solidity, the illusion of time and space, those are all gone. But by the time I would say you're actually liberated. So there's a few important shifts, significant uh, shifts in perception that occur in deeper stage realization. This is not very common, to be honest. I mean, there are people, there are liberated people alive today who teach, but it's it's not super common compared to how many people there are talking about awakening in, a, in an authentic way who've had awakenings and definitely not compared to the, just the wider spiritual world. Um, yeah. doesn't mean it's elitist and it doesn't mean it's impossible. I wouldn't even open my mouth to start talking about this or write the book until I knew that there was a way for anyone who's really, really dedicated to it, to do it. And, and I'm convinced of that. And, and also, uh, I mean, naturally people are going to say, okay, this is great. There's no self thing. How do I do that? You know, mm-hmm. in other words, they're, they're going to create a self mm-hmm. that, that does that. But you had a video that I real that really was, I think, profound, it was called The Paradox of No Self. Mm-hmm. And you wrote, uh, or you say in that, after de-identifying from thought, there's something else that's easy to overlook. The thinker itself is also a thought, just like those are thoughts. The thinker itself is a thought. Mm-hmm. And that that opened, seemed to open a whole new door that, that this whole idea of ourselves is just another thing that appears along with everything else in the vast sort of undefinable, no qualities field of beingness or whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it. That's well said. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And that, that's, that's the real, that would, that's what I would say the, the realization of um, the realization of no self in and as consciousness. Now, believe it or not, this realization actually goes beyond that. It's, it's very difficult to talk about how that is, but it's also very natural. Just like every step of the way, it feels more natural than, than everything you were perceiving before. It's, it's very common. I hear people say after the initial awakening, um, something along the lines of, oh, I remember this. I remember this from childhood, but it wasn't a memory. It was before I was thinking you know, or, or even before, almost like before childhood or infancy, I remember this, but it's not a thought. It's not a belief. It's not a perception of the way things are, the way I am. It's fundamental to all of that. It's pure being, um, or, uh, I think, uh, a term, uh, in, in Dzogchen is like knowingness. It's a nice term. None of these terms are perfect because any of these terms can easily be turned into another thought <laughs> as long as that perceive the perce- perception that I am a thinker is there. What's interesting about this, and you brought, you brought up the, the idea of being the thinker or the thinker itself is a thought. Um, what's interesting about that is this. The hardest things to uproot, you could say, in one sense, are, are things that are behind the view. Whatever's in front of the view, at least you can become aware that that's an object of experience. So a thought, you can become identified with thoughts, right? You can be sitting in the world of my boss and this and like imagining what's happening and the conversation you're going to have and and all of a sudden you realize, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I'm sitting here in this room. My boss isn't here. Those are thoughts, right? That's to de-identify from a thought. Then you realize the thought is an object, okay? But that's in front of the view. The view that, you're, that feels like you, that's the thinker still being not recognized as a thought. You can, identi- you can de-identify from that. That's what awakening is. That's what Kensho is. And it happens like in a second. And it's a, it's a trip. Like 
really surprises people usually. Um, again, even if it's not a big explosion of fireworks or anything, it's it's surprising. It's a it's just a, a blip that that's so strange and so natural and so obvious. Like, how did I not see this? Um, one it's analogy I like to use. Go ahead. It's a different world. As you different say. world. Yeah. Yeah. Another analogy I like to use is like you could imagine your life, let's say up to this point or whatever, has been you've been looking through a knot hole in the fence, right? And the knot hole is like your percept your perceptual filters. That, that's that's how your mind and your experience and your proclivities put together how you perceive the world, right? You know, whether it's good or bad, whether you're good or bad, whether people are nice or not, whether you know, all the the opinions and all the filters we put over the world, but that that hole in the fence you're looking through, that's the perceptual the collection of perceptual filters, let's say that's your lens on the world. That's your eyes, ears, nose, whatever. As you grow and learn and have new experiences and meet new people, you tend to, 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 to sort of see different things on the other side of that fence, depending on where you're looking. And even the hole can kind of change, right? It can become bigger. The lens can clarify. So, so everything on the other side of that fence, all the different experiences or perceptions or ways of perceiving or paradigms, those are kind of like, as you grow and learn and hopefully mature, that's what's changing is the other side of the fence. Awakening is like someone pushes your head out of the way and something else is looking through that hole from this side. And it's like the universe. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's that different. It's so hard to talk about how that could be, how that would be. And then, then again, it's like the, the analogy even breaks down. You're almost looking from both sides of the hole at the same time. And it's just like endless consciousness looking into itself infinitely, like two mirrors and they just literally just go infinitely in all directions. That's how unbound consciousness is experienced when it's truly, when you truly disidentify from both the thinker and the thought objects. Well, you speak so beautifully of, of awakening and the uh, experience that one has when you no longer are looking so much through the lens of an ego. But since most of us are at least partly dealing with a lot of lens of ego, you mentioned earlier that you don't really have methods, but then you mentioned that you help to people dissolve fixations. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's say I'm coming to you. I have a fixation uh, about relationships, mm-hmm. which is true. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, as, um, as does almost everybody, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, and and my mood will go up and down depending on how those relationships are going, etc. Uh, how do you, how would you work with somebody to help to soften or dissolve that fixation so that they have more bandwidth for awakening? Sure. Yeah. A couple, two questions to ask that kind of come at it from different ways. Mm-hmm. This is just coming to me now, but, but one would be ask yourself, what do I want from that person? And then when the mind says, oh, I, I don't really want anything, go, no, no, no. <laughs> what do I really want from that person? What am I expecting them to provide me? right? Is it validation? Do I want them to tell me I'm right? Do I want them to make me feel comfortable? Do I want them to make me feel safe? And be willing to really keep asking that question. You might start feeling yourself regress even, um, like experientially back into childhood. Like, no, I have a map for how I interact with other people, especially when I'm emotionally connected to them. And it started with my mother and father. And now I'm in some way that's actually influencing how I interact with everyone I'm in emotional connection with. What is it I'm actually expecting from that person? And sometimes just asking that question over and over, it sort of reframes how you're seeing that person. You stop seeing them as some enmeshed part of yourself and you start going, oh my God, like, why would I expect them to provide something? I'm not even telling them they're supposed to provide. 
they're just doing their thing. They're just being themselves. And then you start like kind of loving them a little differently because you realize, oh, I was looking through them for the, from looking at them through the lens of what I wanted from them or what I was expecting without knowing it from them. I wasn't actually seeing them. So I'm here wanting to be seen and I'm not even seeing my partner. <laughs> so questions like that can be really helpful. What do I actually want from them? Like if somebody, let's say somebody, I don't know, disrespects you, your part, my partner said something was disrespectful. Okay. Well, what am I actually looking for from them? What do I want? Well, it makes me feel uncomfortable to be disrespected. So, oh, I'm looking for them to make me comfortable. Actually. That's what mm -hmm. I expect from that person. Right. Because if, that, if an average person walks by and does, says something disrespectful, it might annoy you for a second, but you're gonna let go of it. You're not going to think about it for weeks and months, probably unless you have really bad coping mechanisms, perhaps. Um, but with your partner, it's not like that, right? It's like, it feels enmeshed with you. So, so it gets reflected in consciousness a lot more. So that's why you can actually turn that around by asking yourself, what do I actually expect from them? And have I, am I clear on it? And have I told them that even? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> once you know that, and you yeah. know, a lot of people might know that they're psychologically sophisticated. What do you do with that? So once you, first of all, just seeing it, seeing clearly is 90, 95% of all of this. I've said mm -hmm. this like many times that realization is not about getting something. It's not about getting something called enlightenment and just lucking out and finding it and putting it in your soul somewhere. It's not, it's nothing like you don't gain anything. And it's not really about losing anything exactly. You know, you're going to have the same body. You're still going to have a functioning mind. It's actually about clear seeing. So a lot of this is just a matter of actually seeing what's really happening. And that's why I say, ask the question over and over because you can convince yourself, oh, I kind of know the answer and whatever. But the more you ask it, it's going to actually reframe your perceptual experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, then you, you may know what to do next. So, so it could be something like, wow, instead of focusing so much attention on what I want from that person, I, what I actually feel inclined to do now is, is be more of a giver. Of to, to that person. And, and you just feel freed up to, to express love outwardly instead of trying to get something get from something. someone. Uh -huh. And then, then you'll, you'll spontaneously know what to do with it, with that information. Once, once you see clearly the beauty of it is reality takes care of it. Life takes care of everything because, because the weirdest thing about realization, liberation, and so forth is you realize, oh my God, this has been in front of my face the whole time. Nothing has been hidden from me nothing has been hidden from me. It was, it was an act of smoke and mirrors in the mind. I didn't even do it to myself. There's no one to even do it. You know, it's like, I, it's hard to even remember what it was that was causing the perceptual distortions in a sense. It's just clarity, you know? So, um, so a lot of times it's, it's not a matter of what you do with it. It's a matter of seeing clearly what's actually going on. So that's one. And number two, I would say, and this, this applies to like all areas of life, but just say, what am I afraid of? Hmm. Right. If I feel if I feel some tension around work or the boss or a friend or my wife or husband or whatever, what am I afraid of? You know, and, and feel into it and ask, ask it again and again, you know, over time until you really start to perceive what am I afraid of? Talk to a trusted friend about it, like anonymously and say, hey, can I just bounce this off of you? You know, and sometimes just saying it out loud or writing it down, it starts to become clear. Oh, my God, this is a fear of abandonment. I'm afraid that person is going to leave me or I'm afraid they're going to fire me or some other form of abandonment, perhaps. Um, mm -hmm. So asking yourself, what am I afraid of is really valuable. But yeah. would it be realistic to expect that then the fear would go away? Or is it simply experiencing it without resistance? I would say, yeah, I would say both. I think um, there's a, I think Rupert Spira, I heard him say once, uh, 
to, to learn to live without fear, you have to learn to live with fear. So they end up being one and the same where when you feel it fully without, um, without, without ego, it doesn't feel like you thought it did. It feels like something completely different, first of all, but also often it does drop away. And at some point in realization, psychological fear literally drops away. It, it, it's a very, I was talking to someone just to, a woman today about this. She said, all of a sudden I have no fear at all. It's not like I feel brave or courageous. Like I, I, I can't feel fear. And she goes, and this is funny. She says, and it kind of made me nervous, but, and people say this, right? <laughs> not nervous, but concerned because wh- what am I going to do to protect myself and, and this and that, right? It's just, it's just another thought. Um, and what I always explain is you'll, you'll realize that fear was not as intrinsic to living as you thought it was. The thoughts justify everything, right? Fear justifies itself, but psychological fear, it's completely and absolutely unnecessary. You'll still be able to respond to a threatening situation physically. You know, you can move fast. You can get out of the way. You, you would be able to do that if you had to, but you can actually do that without feeling internal fear. Now that's not at all the same as trying to repress fear or convince yourself you don't have fear. The way you get there is by going into fear again and again and again and again, and seeing so clearly what's actually happening that it just sort of disentangles itself and it, you can't, you almost can't find it anymore or you can't find it anymore. So that's not necessarily a goal but it does happen in later stages of realization. Um, first of all, thank you for all that. Very clear and, and very well said. Um, I wanna ask you a, a different type of question, which is you're an anesthesiologist. Mm. And I'm wondering, you know, you might have thought about this, like what is consciousness when you're putting people under, mm. what are you actually doing? Are we learning about anything about what consciousness is from things like anesthesia? Uh, is there any comments you have about that? Is It seems like consciousness is this big mystery, but it mm. seems like we should know something about it with mm-hmm. all the instruments that we currently have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we have a lot of knowledge about states of consciousness that I might define clinically, what, what medications affect it in what ways. Um, it's, it's actually a pretty complex process physiologically. And neurophysiologically, uh, there are different components. There's memory, there's self, the ability to self-reflect. There's the ability to uh, keep your attention on something. Uh, there's the there's ability to concentrate and there's ability to calculate, like executive function of the mind of of um, the forebrain. So there are it's a complex uh, experience, and you can even define it by the the eleven centers of the default mode network and so forth. But for anyone who's watching this, the thing I would say about this is. If you're interested in learning about that, that's no problem. That's great. But that's not how you wake up. It's right. learning how consciousness functions. You know, the, the, what you really want, you want, you want to know what the experience, experientially unbound consciousness is. That's, that, that will alleviate 99% of all your curiosity about consciousness. You may still have a scientific curiosity if you're wired that way afterwards, but it'll be, it'll pale in comparison to the enjoyment of actually just resting in unbound pure conscious experience. It's Since we've phenomenally to, enjoyable. We have learned how to put people unconscious, obviously mm-hmm. with anesthesia. Do you yeah. think that there's any hope that technology will help us to give people more of the experience of consciousness? Yeah, I think, I think um, that they actually can do it right now um, with various technologies. So um, TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, they, they can find very specific brain centers, including like areas on the motor strip 
and by stimulating that area that can make you move a single finger. And it's that, it's that nuanced. From what I understand, they, they can even target the default mode uh, network centers and sort of turn off the default mode network or attenuate it. And people actually do have um, mystical experiences with that. Time, mm-hmm. the experience of timelessness or the experience of non-separation. Shinzen Young, I don't know if you guys have interviewed him. He, he does yet. work. Okay. Yeah. He does work in this stuff. And I, I don't know a lot of detail. I think it's cool. And I think it's promising. I like any kind of modality that investigates consciousness, um, especially if it's done, you know, in a, um, a thoughtful way by somebody, somebody who really has understanding, experiential understanding of realization and so forth. That's awesome. My curiosity about it, uh, or maybe a bit of hesitation is just like with uh, psychedelic drugs and so forth, um, those also can cause and bring about mystical experiences. In fact, at the right doses, they probably do every time, you know, um, the, the downside or the challenge with it is not that you're hacking the system necessarily with a, with a drug and it's like the easy way out or anything, but more, it's more the buy-in that when you, and in my book, I have a, a section in one of the early chapters called when the other shoe drops. When you get a taste of expansiveness or you get um, a taste of what it starts to feel like when identity is not completely solidified ongoing, uh, it may be expansive, it may be intimate, it may be a, a sense of universal love, more real than real. When you get those tastes, it's typically followed by some emotional material that was repressed coming to the surface. And that can be really uncomfortable. And uh, if, if you don't know what to do with it and you're not willing to do something with it, like work with it do inquiry, do emotional integration, uh, various things. If, if you're not interested in that, sometimes what you'll do is to, to kind of dodge it is just take the next dose of something um, and not realize that there is a natural process to this. There's an ebb and flow to it. And it's not all just about blowing yourself out into mystical experiences over and over and over um, because you really do have to come back and, you know, Adi Shanti talks about it more sequentially like the up and out and the down and in. And there is for sure in the realization process, there's a massive up and out, which is we call maybe the first part of awakening. And then, every, and then the shadow work that follows is sort of the down and in, but even, even in the, 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 um, more micro way of, of speaking, it's, it's, it even happens with experiences. Like you'll have an experience of expansion and then an experience of contraction. And it's, that's when it's time to do some, some emotion work and shadow work. So knowing that there's this sort of natural cadence to this and trusting it and being, having the buy-in to, 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 to go into all parts of it instead of just looking for a way to have the good without the bad. Um, that's how realization propagates. So I think these modalities are really cool. And I think they probably will have a place and, and they're neat. And often what the place is, is to give you the first taste. Some people, they're just so mind identified. They're so, they buy so much into their own thoughts that simple inquiry makes no sense. Who am I? It doesn't even make sense to me. I know who I am. I know where I was born in my age and right but you give them some, I don't know, the DMT or something and, or, or mushrooms, let's say, and all of a sudden it just blows them out and they're like, oh, that's okay. So it gives them a taste and it shows them that there is really is something beyond the um, very limited dimension of the human psyche um, when it's constrained by cognitive processes. So, um, so I think that may be the value of those kinds of modalities, but I do believe through TMS and some other different modalities where they can go through the skull and literally like affect the brain centers. Uh, it's quite possible to, to hack some, some experiences, some mystical experiences. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the, the, um, the sort of natural process that you talked about, um, actually, 
going into my own personal experience with reading your book, I was faced with a kind of a dilemma. And, you know, in my experience, the less that I'm focused on a future event like awakening or enlightenment, the more present I am and the more peaceful and happy. And yet I'm fascinated by the idea of totally seeing through the illusion of the separate self completely, the idea of no self, but I'm, I'm a little wary of making my life about something I don't yet have. When, mm. when, when I'm not worried about, I'm filled with joy when I just simply rest as pure awareness, which is, seems to me it's already and always here. Mm. So it's like an in-between dilemma. Mm-hmm. Have you- Yeah, so as I, as I describe in the book, you know, there's the, the sweet spot between intention and surrender. So you could say that this whole- process, which does not happen. Like, as I described in my book, my chapter on paradox, I'm talking about awakening as an event in the future. It's not an event in the future. There's no event. There's no future. Um, it happens now <laughs> and, there's and no it can you. only happen now. And everything is already happening now. Everything that could ever could have happened is already happening right now. All simultaneously, all events simultaneously exist. It's just a matter of conditions, w- which is expressed. So, so awakening is, is very much the same way. And it's, it's in that category. Um, so you could say this whole processless process really is, it's a fluctuation between that intention and surrender. There are times when surrender is what's necessary. And there are times when someone is a little too surrendered, meaning they, they, they want to stay a little unconscious. They don't actually want to look and see the degree of their suffering or the degree of suffering they may be causing someone else, right? We've all been there. At other times, we're fixating too much on some kind of goal. We're turning it into a mental goal. This isn't the mental thing. There's no future in which it's going to happen. Inquiry happens now. And it's it, the purpose of inquiry is to dig deeper into what now is until you go th- right to the bottom of it. So, um, so uh, yeah, I tried in the book to kind of balance that out and, and, and sort of explain that uh, there is a paradox with this for sure. And, and that is that you could argue, uh, anyone who's seen sort of Neo-Advaita uh, teachings videos, like uh, Tony Parsons was probably the first, you know, one who spoke in this way, the open secret message, very good if you haven't seen him, uh, then Jim Newman, and there's a bunch more. They speak in a very similar way, and that is the, the, the seeker, the sense of being a seeker is already illusory. So, so why encourage the seeker? But, but even there's not even anyone who can do that. There's no one who can encourage a seeker or discourage a seeker. It doesn't really matter. It, it, you may wake up, you may not. There may be enlightenment, there may not. But that's not gonna, even going to happen to anyone, right? So, so that's kind of that message, but it's, it's a powerful transmission in the moment. But if you internalize that and believe it's telling you, oh, there's nothing I can do, there's no reason to inquire, there's no, there's no emotion work to do, that, that, that in my opinion is a mistake because I know pretty much from personal evidence that there are people who speak that way who did a ton of work themselves. They were intense, intense spiritual seekers for years. They gave their whole life to that, right? So this, all, this stuff is all paradoxical. Again, what I go back to when I'm working directly with somebody is a matter of fixation. If I feel them fixating in this sense of doership, I'm going to help them undermine that right now. If I feel them fixating in a way that they're, they're, they're going avoidant, oh, there's nothing to do. There's no one. There's nothing to look at. And yet what I feel in them is a massive amount of suffering coming to the surface and they don't want to feel it. And I go, well, let's find out what, let's look into what you're feeling. Right. Um, and so, so again, we can fixate in any way and we can fixate in the masculine and we can fixate in the feminine, um, energetically. So, so Zen's a great example of what we're taught, this paradox of spirituality we're talking about in that you would think Zen is one lineage. It's one thing. It's one sort of, um, sect of Buddhism. But when you look at Japanese Zen, it's actually two 
quite different in, in a sense uh, approaches. There's Soto Zen, and Soto Zen is you know based based on sort of the way Dogen taught, which was you know there's there's no there's nothing to strive for. You're you're already Buddha nature. Just sit there and realize it. That's it. There's nothing more to it, right? Um, and Renzai is like, well, fat lot of good it does to you does you to believe you're a Buddha when you're suffering, when when you're not in direct contact with your Buddha nature. So why don't you work work really hard to to get to that first awakening and, and wake up and open the gate, open the door, get through the first you know gateless barrier, and then you're more in a place where you can really start to allow the spontaneous spontaneous unfolding of spirituality to to and so forth. Now again, because of the paradoxes, there's a lot that's actually similar between Soto and Renzai, but the 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 thrust of practice is quite different actually, especially initially. So again, another paradox and. The beauty of it is in a way you kind of have to find your own way with this. You have to learn to sense into when you might be fixating a little too much in, in non-doing or when you might be, you know, uh, on the other side of things, like really overthinking it, trying to push, trying to force something to happen through the way you're thinking about it, through the way you're, you're applying a paradigm to, to the world. Is that helpful? It is. Yeah, it is quite helpful. What advice would you have for people in meditation, you mentioned that you like Ajashanti's uh, a lot, but do people should people be doing different types of meditation depending upon where they are, or is there one type that you think, well, that's going to be helpful for everyone? Yeah, I think I think one type that would be helpful for for everyone if they if they resonate with it, if they can if they can do it yet, <laughs> would <laughs> be natural. What I would I describe natural meditation or not do it. What I would describe as natural meditation or in Soto Zen would be called Shikantaza. And it's, it's essentially not modulating your experience in any way. You're not defining your experience. You're not, you're not, you have no goal. What you're not doing is distracting yourself. So you're sitting quietly with your eyes closed. You're not playing with your phone. You're not purposely going down thought roads. But beyond that, beyond just eliminating distractions, there's no specific goal. You're not trying to there's no right or wrong way to do it. You're not, you're not trying to direct your attention in any specific sense gate. Um, you're not trying to relax specifically. Um, and, and, you know, I, I write about this in the book and Adi Shanti, I think has a, a different version of, or not a different, probably very similar version of it. Um, I think he calls it basic meditation or true something. meditation because it true true meditation, true meditation. Yeah. yeah. And someone told when I, when I wrote my chapter on um, natural meditation, someone said, Hey, that's Adyashanti's true meditation. And so I went and looked at it and I said, Oh, it's quite, quite similar. And then I, I thought, well, I mean, we're both from Zen backgrounds. So for me, it was interesting because I had heard about Shikantaza, but I still somehow perceived it was a, a, a technique somehow. I, I guess I didn't really feel into it, but it hit me one day and I didn't even think, Oh, this is Shikantaza. Just suddenly, while meditating, there was it was very obvious there was no need for any technique at all. In fact, natural meditation was just the most simple thing in the world, and it's it's essentially always happening. And that's how that's how it struck me. So that type of meditation, that approach to meditation, if if somebody vibes with it, I think is certainly valuable to anyone. And I often recommend it, even. When someone's say going through later stages of realization and doing a very specific inquiry into the sense fields, looking into the subject object construct or the, the formless nature of objects and so forth, even when they're doing those kinds of pointed inquiries, um, I, I often tell them I would alternate that with natural meditation. Take some time to just do nothing, even week, a week or two weeks. There's no need to 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 
overly direct your, your attention. Now, I'll tie that into the question you asked as well. And that is, again, a paradoxical thing, but specific to this one-pointed approach I sometimes talk about with approaching the first awakening, where you hone your attention down into something, it can be anything, an, a focus of attention, a focus of inquiry that's so tight that there's like nothing else but that. It becomes a very singular experience. So in Zen, it would be called, what is Mu? It's the first koan you usually get, Mu. Or uh, the question, who am I? Until it just becomes who, who, who. Just until that question is so absorbing that there's nothing apart from it at all anymore. That's a one-pointed approach. And it does feel like, a, like an intense focus. It feels, you could say, it feels like seeking. But here's the deal. Seeking is already happening. The mind is endlessly seeking. But it's kind of, for the typical mind-identified person, it's kind of like dilated out into all these different directions. Maybe, maybe one or two, but for the most part, the mind's kind of going in different directions all day long and so forth. When you, when, there's something magical that happens when you hone it down into this one-pointed approach and specifically use a question or a focus that cannot be answered cognitively, cannot be answered logically. Magic does happen. It, it, it goes from feeling like a massive amount of exertion or effort sometimes to like, this thing that's alive and doing it. It's like, it's itself. It's inquiring itself. Moo is like mooing moo. Who is asking who? It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm wondering what questions would fit that description. Obviously, who am I would be one of them. Are there other mm -hmm. questions you work with? Um, what is moo is a good one. Now, having a little background, understanding that moo is not, there, there's a story behind it, but the story doesn't matter. Mu is beautiful because it gives the mind nothing to grab onto. Not that you can't, you can't put the first thought around Mu because it makes no sense, right? Um, and yet you trust that there's an answer because so many Zen practitioners in, in, over the last hundreds of years have woken up contemplating this koan, right? So what is Mu becomes very, it's very interesting. It, start, it starts out by feeling maybe distasteful and solid and, and like uh, opaque. And over time, it starts to feel different. Like, oh my God, no, there's something here. There's something, my, my Zen teacher just keeps telling me, no, 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 don't explain Mu to me. I want you to be so infused with Mu, just become so one with Mu that there's only Mu. That's the whole key. And when you're actually able to do that, often that's when the shift occurs. Magic happens and it's a trip. I mean, it's like, wow, whoa, whoa. I did not expect that at all. It, it, it's always unexpected. Um, and so, so what is Mu? Uh, there are others, there are other ones in Zen, I think that are good. Like what is my original face? What is my face before I was born? What is my face before my parents were born? Right. It binds the mind up in this funny way. And that's, that's the key with a koan, especially a first koan is to bind up the mind. And yet some form of inquiry goes beyond that binding. Something can keep going beyond it and you feel it. And again, at first it feels opaque, feels like silly. The mind will keep putting up thoughts going, this doesn't make sense. I don't know if I'm doing it right. And then, you know, your teacher will just say, Hey, those are thoughts. Keep asking, keep asking. Yeah. 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 And you will go beyond those thoughts. Yeah. And it becomes, yeah. instinct it becomes instinctual. Yeah. It's so similar to some, well, first of all, I just have to say that when you just now, when I asked what is who I started laughing uncontrollably and I have no idea why. There you go. Second of all, very similar. And I've talked about this on the program before. One of my very first tastes, I was watching Gangaji talk about Papaji, her teacher. And he said, 
what if you had no intention? Mm -hmm. And at first I just laughed because isn't deciding to have no intention an intention, <laughs> but then something, something relaxed. Mm -hmm. Some, and, and, but I was so glad to hear you talk about inquiry and I guess, you know, Ajishanti's true meditation is two parts. You allowing everything to be as it is mm. and asking the question, who or what is experience or, or, or who am I or whatever inquiry mm. questions that it seems to me that they go together. If I sit, if you sit down to do inquiry with the idea that you're going to either get rid of whatever you're feeling now or bring about something that you don't have. It, it's bound to fail. It's like guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And so if you yeah. do them both, it seems to me that that's, or, or maybe as maybe you have to sort of alternate between just, you know, natural meditation, just allowing, just mm -hmm. being with whatever it is, and then focusing on, on inquiry. I don't know whether you need to alternate or you can do them at the same time or yeah, you have to like feel into it. I would say feel into it and try different things. But if with something like this, we're, we're doing such subtle work, I would say try it for a week or two before you change it to something else, right? Or, or you'll just end up thinking about it. So I would, I would say give it some time to, to just settle in and see how it works. But yeah, that, that's part of the interesting thing about this is you can't wake yourself up. You, as you take yourself to be, can't wake yourself up, but awakening definitely happens. Something's, something's operating there and it's driving this whole process. Um, that question was beautiful that uh, Papaji put to Gangaji that you mentioned, what if you had no intention? And I like how you said, well, isn't having no intention an intention? And I would say it this way, you, as you take yourself to be, actually can't have no intention, but it doesn't mean that there's not something here that has no intention. What is that? Beautiful. Can you feel it? Can you feel it? Right? Is it right? It's just right yes. there. Right here. Yes. yes. And that's the beauty of this stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Inquiry is fascinating. It's beautiful. I'm sure you've heard me say, I think I said it in the book somewhere that inquiry really is the, is the key to this, this stuff. It's not a certain meditation technique. That's the key. It's not having the right teacher, although a, a, a truly realized teacher can be very, very valuable. The key is at some point being willing to, to do inquiry full on with full force, willing to let go into where it's pointing you and being authentic about it. That, that's what wakes people up, whatever form it comes in. People stumble on it on their own. You know, Eckhart Tolle described it at the beginning of his book. You know, I just asked the question, well, if I can't live with myself, wait a minute, is there one of me or is there two of me, right? Asking the right question at the right time with the right amount of suffering behind it and letting that inquiry burn, burn, burn deep, deep, deep into in beyond layers of identity. That's, that's what awakening is. That's what causes it. I can't even tell you what awakening is still it's, it's, it's alive right now. It's right here. It's every sound we're hearing. It's, it, it is, it just is. It's not, it's not something that happens to someone. There aren't people who have it and people who don't, but we're talking about awake nature. It's, it's, it's literally every, everything we're feeling and experiencing and it's nothing at all. Uh, uh, and how one seeming individual comes full on into, um, into synchronicity with that is a, is a bit of a mystery, but it definitely happens. And opening yourself to the possibility and being willing to go through whatever you have to go through is huge. It's, a, it's a, an intention like that is powerful. You speak so eloquently on these things, Angela. I really appreciate it. I had I, never heard a definition of inquiry quite like yours, which I really like, which is 
digging deeper into what is happening now. And um, that's a very nice, simple definition. And yet it leads to so many different ways to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really appreciate your thoughts about that. Um, we want you to guide a meditation for our listeners. But before that, I'm wondering if there's anything that you feel like you'd like to add or that we missed or that you wish we had asked you that might yeah. be helpful for our listeners. Yeah. So what I'm inclined to say is, you know, anyone listening to this, uh, maybe some of these terms we're using are foreign. Maybe they're not. You probably have a lot of savvy listeners too. Mm -hmm. But if, if any of this, the terminology, something in you says, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if that's for me or if that's about me. I don't understand Buddhism. I'm not interested in it. Or, um, you know, I, I don't know. This, this stuff sounds foreign to me. It sounds like something that happens to other people. Maybe I believe in it, but it sounds like something that happens to other people. I just want anyone listening to this, to, to, and I want them to hear this, that if you've listened this long to this, you absolutely can wake up. You, you, it's, it's there. And it, it's, so, it's so much bigger than the dimension you're taking yourself to be. That's how it becomes overlooked. It's so strange that way. It's, it's, a, it's benevolent. It's, uh, it's complete. It's infinitely patient. It's right there for you. So, um, so this isn't about some spiritual um, sect. It's not about some ancient text. It's not about stuff that happened to other people. This is literally about you, if you're listening. And that, that's what I really want to get across to people. Um, uh, you may go through things that will surprise you. You may, may go through painful things, but there, there's a way out of suffering. Um, and they, the way out is in, into your identity and beyond. Beautiful. That's it. I feel like I just had a seven-course meal. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um... I want to uh, say uh, first, thank you to you. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you want additional things from us uh, and want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash awareness explorers. We love your reviews. You love, we love when you pass on these important interviews to your friends and family. And we have a bunch of meditations at our website, awarenessexplorers.com including soon to be your guided meditation, Angelo. Uh, so I look forward to you guiding us into whatever you think would be valuable for us. Awesome. Okay. Shall we begin? Yes. Okay. Sure. All right. So when we begin to meditate, it can be helpful to just sort of take inventory of the senses, what we feel body sensations from the feet, legs, hips and pelvis, the trunk, chest, shoulders, neck, face and head. Just a general touching into those sensations, that cloud of body sensation. And then just let our attention sort of drift out to the sound field as if we want to just take in all the sounds at once, not directing our attention to any specific sound, just the whole sound cloud, non-judgmentally, non-filtering. Now, we may also notice some mental activity, thoughts. They could be thoughts about 
what we're hearing. Does this make sense? Does this not make sense? What does he mean by sensation? Could be a thought about your experience, a label like, I feel relaxed. Or I feel tension in this part of my body. I wish it wasn't there. Or thoughts about sounds in the room that maybe are distracting or not. But we just want to sort of take a, an overall general inventory, a feel of the, the thought space, the space in which these thoughts arise and settle. Similar to when we took in the entire sound field non-judgmentally. We can just sort of take in the space of thoughts, where they occur, how they move, the consciousness, which is the substance of thought, and the space of thought. Now, you might notice also that the experience of being you, the perceiver, the sort of center of your awareness or consciousness is also continuous with this, this thought space, this aware space. So we want to just allow any thought movement to be just as it is. We're not going to add judgment to any movements of the mind, any narratives or self-talk. It's all made of the same substance, conscious substance. Similarly, we may have mental images, something we're imagining, a image of the room we're in, even if our eyes are closed, or someone's face, or an image of our own body. Now, these are also made out of the same conscious material, the substance of consciousness, which is quite a fluid substance. It's not solid. Now, when we don't push or pull on any of the aspects of this space, this conscious space, when we let go of the tendency to Judge, I like it, I don't like it. This is good meditation, this is bad meditation. When we let go of that, the fundamental tendency to categorize in this way, we might notice a little bit more of a kind of unguarded, spontaneous experience. And again, we're 
allowing our attention to stay dilated, just taking in the entirety. Now, even the need to judge where our attention is, whether it's a sound or a sensation or a thought, even that need is unnecessary. It itself is a simply a thought. And we let that thought, that perception just melt into the sea of consciousness. So we're not concerned whether there's thought consciousness, overlapping sound, overlapping body sensation. It can be all one, two. We're out of the business of management. We spend our day managing our experience, our attention, our minds. So this is the opportunity to just really let everything happen spontaneously. Your experience of being, of knowingness, of the conscious substance, is rather porous. It allows anything to move through without resistance. Even spatial labels like top and bottom and inside and outside can just settle into the sea of consciousness. So we're not trying to modulate or control anything, including the breath. At the same time, we may notice the breath, the movement of the chest, the sensation of air moving through the nose, over the tongue, even down the throat. Just pure sensation. We don't need the visual overlay, the image of the body. The sensations feel themselves. They're self-obvious. They require no mental confirmation. So we might even feel the tendency for the manager to, to arise or try to grasp. That's okay. 
if we notice a bit of grasping, we may notice it also dissolves just as fast. We don't have an agenda with it. When we're free of agendas, everything microscopic and macrocosmic can be just as it is. And it is just as it is. And then we can see it, feel it, hear it, and cognize it just as it is. When we're empty of filters, when we're empty of grasping, we're absolutely full, effortlessly full. So here, even full and empty lose their meaning. inside and outside lose meaning. They're one and the same. Movement and stillness lose meaning. Self and other dissolve into one another. So what's left when all of these filterings and management subside is deeply mysterious, carries no label, requires no understanding. has no limitation, no specific shape, no specific form, no specific color or texture, no specific sound, and it excludes nothing. No sound is excluded. No sensation is excluded. No color, form, movement is excluded. So we remain in the undefined. the mysterious. The ungraspable. 
and the undeniable. Just as it is. That was marvelous. Thank you so much. I, I just at the very end, I just jotted down a couple phrases like the ungraspable and the undeniable, just as it is. But it was just so filled with exactly that, pointing to experience that can't really be contained in words, and yet, mm. and yet the words marvelously pointed to it. It's a paradox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really is. So much paradox. <laughs> that was a really good example of a guided technique of no technique meditation. You know, like... Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a fusion between... <laughs> I didn't really plan it, I just noticed it. But a bit of a fusion between unbound consciousness, like experience of unbound consciousness and uh, natural meditation, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah really well done. Well, we are honored by your presence and, and so grateful for, um, for the clarity of your, your teaching. Yeah, it was really great uh, chatting with you both. So much fun. I'm so, so glad. And, uh, and also, you have an app as well. As, as, uh, yeah, as a- if you like the guided meditations, there's a free app up for iPhone and Android called Simply Awake. It has like 60, almost 70, I think, on there. Yeah, it's great. I'm only up to like 17 right now, but <laughs> I do one every day. It's wonderful. Right. Yeah. And, and and your book is Awake. It's your turn. Yeah, it's available on Amazon in hardcover uh, as well as Kindle. And I'm going to at some point and then hopefully in your future do an audio version of it. So we'll see how long I was, I was about to suggest that. Uh... <laughs> For, for all of us really lazy people like me who uh, don't want to read, I would really appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's 130,000 words. So I'm not sure how long it's going to take me to read that before my voice cracks and, you know, doesn't hold out. But we'll see. Um, I'd like to be able to do it in a couple of weeks, but uh, if I have two weeks off, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. And <laughs> people can learn about you. Uh, simplyalwaysawake.com is my website. Uh, there are announcements there for... Uh, retreats and so forth. Oh, actually, what I really should say is there's a landing page, books.simplyalwaysawake.com. That's the landing page. It has a place to enter email. And the only really announcements I send out through that are for retreats. But people ask me very frequently how to find out about retreats. That's the easiest way because that's the master mailing list. Um, And I have a YouTube channel called Simply Always Awake and tons of videos and playlists. Like definitely look at the playlists and watch the intro video that describes which playlists are for what, because I really try to put them in sections for people, depending on what they're working with and, and that sort of thing. Highly recommend. Fantastic. Thank you for, for your wisdom. And thank you for listening. And tell your friends and family, if you like this video, send it to them. Until next time, keep exploring. Keep exploring. Keep exploring. Thank you for listening to Awareness Explorers. To learn more, you can check out our website 
at awarenessexplorers.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you would post a review. And please share our link on Facebook and with family and friends, because knowing yourself as awareness is the greatest gift you can give yourself or someone you love.